In this episode of The Interface, I have the pleasure of spending time with Adam Norwood, Amphenol's president and CEO at the corporate headquarters in Wallingford, Connecticut. Adam was kind enough to give me a tour of headquarters and then we sat down to chat. We talk about his history coming up through the ranks of the company. We talk about the unique culture of Amphenol that makes us the industry leader in interconnects. And we talk about what it means to be a true Amphenolian. This is definitely a longer conversation than usual that we have on here, but I really think it's one that you won't want to miss. This is The Interface. I tried to think of how to approach this with you, and I thought maybe I'll just present him with some scenarios. Okay. <laughs> so I'll surprise you with a couple of scenarios. Not that, not, not that difficult, but just to talk through some stuff. But first, so, do I get to welcome you to Wallingford, Chris? Of course, yeah. Well, welcome to Wallingford, well, Chris. Thank, thank you very much, It's great to have you in our headquarters. I just gave Chris a little tour. Yeah. And I think Chris can attest to the glamour that is Wallingford. Yeah, it's it's amazing how I, I'm now very jealous of how fancy this place is. Yeah, now you know why every time I come to Sydney, it's hard for me to leave. Because <laughs> you guys actually have nice offices. Okay, yeah, well, it's a, it's a newer building. This is, what, 1870s, that's 2015? 15, 14, yeah. 14 or 2014, 15. Yeah. So, yeah, slightly newer, but... Uh, Only 145 years difference between the two, and it, it, give barely, it barely shows. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a great... Now, I, I've been here before. I've been up to Times Microwave Systems. Um, doing some work with them, but I had never been down into corporate headquarters. And um, everything that I've heard from other people who've been here has been very accurate. I'll tell you a funny story. Sorry to hijack. No, no, I know you this have a is, question. No, no, absolutely. So two years ago, Dave Silverman and I, um, who's our head of HR, we, we were in a tough negotiation with our landlord. So we have a landlord in the building mm -hmm. who inherited the building from his dad. And I don't think he's listening today. He's kind of a... Not the greatest guy. Okay. So anyways, the guy tried to raise our rent by like double. He said he went out, he did a market survey, and he wanted to double the rent on this place. This place is barely worth the rent we pay, <laughs> as you can tell and attest to. <laughs> I'll go with you on that. So it just turns out that he hired a local real estate, like one of these famous uh, Caldwell Banker or something like that, to, to benchmark. And he brought in this study from Caldwell Banker to tell us that you know, we were way under market and we got to double the rent. The same day, another broker from Caldwell Banker sent us one of these pitch books we get for other real estate. Mm -hmm. And it was a really nice building, actually. This company called Alexion Pharmaceuticals, they had moved and they'd left this like purpose-built, fully furnished, most beautiful building in the world. So I went to Dave and I said, you know what? Let's go credibly meet that building and talk about moving sure. this headquarters, which would be a big step. We've been here since 1987. And so we went, and this building was unbelievable, Chris. Mm. The CEO's office, his secretary had a bigger office than I have as my <laughs> office here. Mm -hmm. And it was furnished, like the most beautiful furniture, oak, like so far it was, must have taken a forest of oak trees to furnish this office. Right. It had like 20 backup generators. The generators themselves were probably worth like three, four million dollars. It was a pharma building. They were yeah. making like drugs in this building. And we're there with the real estate agent and the owner of the building. And we say to the guy, well, this building is not something we could afford. And he says, tell me what your rent is today. I'll match it. Whoa. I'll yeah. match it. Yeah. And actually, I'll do better. I'll give it 10% lower than whatever you're paying today. No cost for any of the furniture. They had actually video conferencing sets in almost every conference room. Wow. Fully equipped. This company just left like it was a neutron bomb. Wow. 
And so we then took that information back to our landlord and we got about a three, four percent increase. But we actually considered going to this place. Sure. In the end, the reason we didn't, it was too nice. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, when we I bring customers, we bring shareholders here, part of the mystique of Amphenol is that we have this headquarters, which is a little bit run down. It's modest. How about it, that? It's modest. It's, yeah. it's accommodating. It's functional. But it's not over the top. And even though this other headquarters was going to be cheaper for us, even though it had all new furniture, everything beautiful... We decided we were going to stay put, but we used it as leverage, and we got our rent uh, at a pretty reasonable rate. <laughs> That's great. I, I think we're going to come back to the spirit of that a little bit later on in this conversation. But let me give Anyways, you. Anyways, welcome to it, our beautiful it, well, building. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate you hosting me. This is very kind of you. First scenario: you're out in town here in Wallingford or somewhere in the local area. You're at a a uh, school function for your kids or you're at the shopping mall or whatever it may be. And you just happen to be standing in line and meet someone for the first time. And they say, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I, I run this company called Amphenol. And they go, I have no idea what Amphenol is. What is Amphenol? What do you tell that person? Well, the first thing I tell them is it's not a drug company. Right. Because as you know, I'm sure you see this with your friends. It just has to be a pharmaceutical company if it's called Amphenol. Um, so I tell them I don't work in pharma. That's the, the very first thing. I, look, when I meet someone like on the side of the track field at one of my son's track meets in the past or whatever, I, I generally say I just I work in electronics. Mm -hmm. and, and then they say, oh, what do you do in electronics? And I say, I work for a company that makes electronic components. And, you know, usually people are pretty good with that. Yeah. And you don't have to go the next few steps. But eventually, you know, someone will say they drill down a little bit. And the, the, what I will say to people when they ask, you know, what, is, what does your company really do? What do you make? And I say, well, we make a thing called connectors. And then obviously they're going to say, what's a connector? Because mm -hmm. I said that, by the way. So did 21 I. 21 and a half years ago when right. I, before Google decided to consider working for a company called Amphenol, I had to learn what a connector is. Sure. I mean, I understand what it says in the dictionary, but I don't actually know what a connector is. So then what I usually do is I pull my phone out and I say, you know how you charge your phone every night? That's a connector. Yeah. And they I say, oh, so that's what you make? Yeah. I say, well, actually, technically, we don't even make that connector. <laughs> right. Right. But think of things like that. Yeah. I always use the plug, like the lamp yeah, plug, plug into in an outlet. Yeah. Right, right. Which also we kids. don't make, by right. the way. But they get the idea. Um, but then once you start talking about it, it's really interesting. People get fascinated. People who aren't my wife, by the way. Mm -hmm. Drives my wife nuts. I mean, sure. for 21 years, I've been boring her spotting connectors in every room, <laughs> every plane, every train, every car we're in. She's had a little bit enough of that. Uh, she loves Amphenol, but me pointing out connectors in the movie theater yeah. when the lights are about to go down, I say, look up in the ceiling, that's a cool connector. It's <laughs> like, have some more popcorn, honey. All right. Um, but no, I mean, they, you start talking about the applications that we're in. You start talking about the fact that a, a fighter jet wouldn't work without us. Right. Start talking about the fact that a cell phone couldn't communicate without us. Talk about the fact that a car, an airbag in a car that saves people's lives wouldn't work without us. Now you get people sort of standing up a little bit taller and wondering what the company is. Right, and, right. And then, you know, I tell them, because I my kids go to school just down south from here, well, you, you drive by my office every day because most of these folks go by exit 65 here on the Merritt Parkway, which you probably took as, as you were coming into the building. And, and, I, and, they, and I say, I'm in that building right off exit 65. And they say... You mean that drug company there? 
course. And then you have to go back again <laughs> yeah. and explain, no, Amphenol is not a drug company. Oh, I always thought that was a drug company. Yeah. No, but I, I, I like how you describe it in real-world real applications. The one I always go to by default is, well, you know when you're flying on a plane somewhere, if you peel the skin off of all the inside of an aircraft, you're going to see miles and miles of cables. So not only do we make the cables oftentimes – but the clamps that those cables are attached to the yeah. bulkheads with and all the connectors along the way. And then you get into the the boxes where they go in and Absolutely. the electronics bay. So yeah, all that stuff, we make all that stuff. And then they, same thing. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, the good news, it used to be you got to get a little gross about it like you do, peel the skin off. No one wants to picture an airplane with the skin well, peeled sure. off. Yeah. But today- we're making connectors that passengers use every day to charge their devices. The USB connectors that we make, I mean, wonderful products that we make in Amphenol. You go into a car and the plugs that you have in the car to mm -hmm. charge your phone or the interactions that passengers have, we're one of the dominant players now in that those connectors that people interact with, actually, as opposed to the stuff that's just under the hood or, or behind, the, behind the skin of the plane like it used to be. So the fun stuff now. At least the visible stuff. Sure. It doesn't scare you. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you don't want to be like, well, we'd, you'd crash without us. Yeah, so, I mean, I say that. I pull that out that once brutal. in a while. Yeah. I mean, the line I use when I talk to investors all the time, especially about our power products, is I, I always say, look, there's, there's one paramount thing about a connector that's used in power applications is don't catch stuff on fire. Mm -hmm. Like in our quality labs, you, know, you have right. a lot of technical data, but at the top of the list got to just say, don't catch stuff on fire. Right. And you know, people understand that. And I think they're pretty <laughs> sympathetic to it. So you said you've been with Amphenol for 21 years, but you didn't come here directly out of, of college. I know that. So just briefly, what was your, your history from you know, your undergraduate degree to Amphenol? Yeah, so so I I wanted to be going into college. My dream was to be in government. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a diplomat. I maybe run for office one day. I dreamed to be like an ambassador to some third world country. Like that would have yeah. been like a real dream job for me. Like put put me in Cambodia as ambassador one day, and I, I will have made it as far as I'm concerned. And so I, I studied foreign service, foreign mm -hmm. affairs, international politics, actually uh, at, at Georgetown. And, and along the way, I decided that government probably wasn't going to be for me. I had a little bit of exposure to people who'd spent their careers in government. And you know, there, it takes a certain something, let's just say that, to spend right. your career in the government. Um, you, you got to have a, a passion and a patience that, that are, are a unique combination to, to really make it for well a said. career in government. Yeah. And, yeah. and I have a lot of admiration, by the way. Mm -hmm. I have tremendous admiration for people who dedicate their lives to service on behalf of our government and, and other governments around the world. But it, it just didn't seem like it was going to be for me. So then I decided, you know, the natural thing to think about is to go to law school. And so rather than going straight to law school out of college, I decided that I was going to be a little smart about it. And I was going to work in a law firm as a paralegal to see what it's like to be a lawyer. So very wise, right? Yeah, yeah. So I Good worked move. for two years. Mm -hmm. I decided, all right, I could deal with that. I worked actually on one litigation in this DC law firm for two years. It was fun. I got to know a lot about medicine because it was this product liability thing. And then I applied and got into law school and I ended up going to Michigan Law School out in, in Ann Arbor. And then my first summer out of law school, I worked for a law firm in LA. I decided to go out to LA. I'm originally from California. Mm -hmm. And I decided now I'm going to try something back home. I hadn't been back to California to live since I was 14. 
Wow. Because I went to boarding school um, okay. uh, uh, for high school. So been on the East Coast for a long, long time. Went to LA, worked in a law firm, and my first summer at one law firm, very fortunate that I went to that law firm because I met my wife. We were, we were summer interns who started on the same day wow. back in June of 1994 together. So Holy that was cow. a very special yeah. thing. I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't end up going to that law firm. My second summer, I worked at a different law firm, a big law firm out in Los Angeles. And I ended up after law school going to work as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing, you know, I had this whole foresight of trying it out as a paralegal and you know, making sure that was the career I wanted to have. And then you spend a lot of money to go to law school, a lot of yeah. time. It's three yeah. years of your life, and it's brutal. It's just like in the movies. And I'd say within about 90 days of being a lawyer, I'm like, oh, my God, I screwed this <laughs> up. This is not for me. Really? This is not for me. Like, oh, it, it was terrible. And uh, I'll never forget my, my first review six months into being a lawyer you know, you don't really have a boss when you're a lawyer. You have all these partners and mm-hmm. an associate. And this uh, this partner tells me, "Hey, Adam, you know, everybody, all your peers like you. You know, you're a nice enough guy and everything. Clients, you know, they they like you, okay. But um, we see some real warning signs for your future career." Mm. And I said, "Oh, really? What's that?" And he says, um, "Yeah, we think you're too interested." in the client's business and not enough in just getting the job done that a junior lawyer needs to get done. Oh, how bizarre. It was bizarre, yeah. but it was really important. Yeah. That was a real eye-opening moment for me. And he then he used this famous sentence that I'll never forget. He said, the job of a junior lawyer is not to care about the business of the client. It's to make sure that exhibit A goes where exhibit A was supposed to go. Mm. And you know what, to, to his credit, this guy named Peter, I won't use his last name, he was absolutely spot on correct. Sure, and he was also correct that I was more interested in the business of the clients than I than than I was in making Providing sure Exhibit A advice, goes right. well, or at least making sure Exhibit A goes in the right place, <laughs> yeah. and making sure that the commas should be semicolons and vice versa. And so that night, I went home and made a resume, and it took me then sixteen months to exit. So I was a lawyer for twenty two months. Yeah, but that night is when I started. You know, my mission to, to do something else in life. Um, I applied for some jobs at consulting firms. I didn't get them. And then I ultimately decided to go to business school. And so I applied to a place uh, called INSEAD in France, uh, which, you know, there's a yeah. number of colleagues in Amphenol who've, who've gone there. Heard of it, yeah. Um, and I got in, which was great. My wife, uh, amazingly supportive as she is, decided she'd take a sabbatical. We'd both moved to France. And then right in the middle, just by happenstance, a friend of mine who'd gone there sent me a job posting for a company that sounded like a drug company called Amphenol. Yeah. And he sent it to me because he said, hey, you know, this is just to validate that it's great that you're going here. And it was a job to do merger and acquisition research in Asia. And the criteria of the job was that you spoke an Asian language. And I have this sort of party trick of speaking Chinese. Mm-hmm and that you knew something about mergers and acquisitions. And I was an M&A lawyer as, as much as one can be as a, a 20 months into the job. Right. And so I sent off a, a, a kind of a request for an informational interview. You know, that's sort of what you're told to do when you're not credible to get a job. You, you just say, I'd like to meet you and yeah. network. And I sent it to the, the gentleman at the time who ran Amphenol's Asian operations, a guy named Mark Twelfhoven, And he didn't answer me. <laughs> for months. Yeah. I think it was two months 
And then one morning I'm in my uh, little apartment in Hermosa Beach, California at five in the morning and my phone rings. And it's this guy calling me saying, uh, yeah, you know, this is Mark Twelfhoven. He had this very thick Dutch accent, which I won't try to replicate. And he, <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, you sent us uh, your resume. Are you still interested in the job? And it was a summer internship I, was, I didn't know I was applying for. Right. And I said, uh, yeah, I guess I am. And then, then we talked for a while, and I, I didn't really know. It wasn't an interview per se, but it was just we were talking. And then he said to me, well, one of my colleagues is going to call you. He actually happens to be in L.A. tonight. And, uh, and I hung up the phone, and my wife was kind of bleary-eyed. She said, what the heck was that? Well, who's calling you at 5 mm. in the morning? Because he was in Asia. That's why he was calling me yeah. so early. Yeah. And I said, I think it was a job interview, but I'm actually not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then at about 6.30 in the morning, I get another phone call, and it's this uh, very, very lovely Frenchman calling me Yeah, um, who says that he happens to be in L.A., and would I meet him at, the, at this hotel that night? Uh, I'll never forget, he calls it the Marriott La Torrance. The Torrance Marriott. The Torrance Marriott. Marriott. And, uh, and uh, he, I said, yes, and you know, who should I look for? And he says, well, my name's Luke Walter, and uh, just look for me in the lobby. Unfortunately, I have a dinner, so we'll have to meet a little bit late. Do you mind meeting me at about 10.30 or 11? Mm. I said, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So I went and got a haircut because my hair was a little long because I didn't care about my job, and I hated being a lawyer. So I and just, you're on Hermosa Beach. I'm in Hermosa Beach. Yeah. I was surfing in the evening yeah. sometimes. Hanging out at Hennessy's. Yeah. Hennessy's, yeah. the yeah. lighthouse. Yeah. Uh, Sharkies, you know all the places. Um, and uh, so that night I had an interview with Luke Walter, who yeah. was, you know, one of the statesmen of Amphenol, who was in charge of M&A for Amphenol mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, we got along amazingly. I think we stayed till two in the morning talking in the lobby of this Torrance Marriott. And uh, eventually they hired me, which was unbelievable. Yeah. And I uh, came out to headquarters. And then in July, I think it was second week of July of 98, I got on a plane to Taiwan where I was going to be based to do M&A research uh, as an intern in Asia. Wow. And, uh, you know, I had to bluff a few things. I, I, I fibbed a little bit in my interview about knowing Excel and PowerPoint. Oh, yeah. And of accounting. Yeah. I didn't really know accounting, actually. So yeah. I had to teach that to myself a little bit. But it was great. Phenomenal experience. And then the most important thing about that whole, you know, it was about half a year that I ended up uh, doing this internship was I was fortunate to be put in an office where there was just an amazing general manager there. This guy named Casey Liu. He was the general manager of Amphenol Taiwan. And Casey was a treasure inside of Amphenol. He's since retired uh, mm -hmm. quite a number of years ago. But what was unique about Casey is he was in charge of a business, but he was also in charge of a market, Taiwan. So every Amphenol product that would be sold into Taiwan, Through Casey him. was in charge yeah. of that. So he knew the company so well. So every night I would go out and I'd buy him dinner. And it turns out he had this weird addiction to McDonald's cheeseburgers. <laughs> and there was a McDonald's just down the street from this little office we had in the yeah. suburbs of Taipei. So I'd go buy a couple of burgers and some fries and you know, a shake or a Coke, come back, give him dinner, and he'd teach me about connectors mm. all night long. And that's what that was how I really learned the company, learned the culture and, and the products in the market. And that is that is that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So Taiwan was where you first that's started. That's where I first started. But I was running around. I lived in a hotel. I was yeah. in Japan a lot, China a lot, 
Love it. Um, yeah, visited probably great. in six months, 70 factories. Wow. Just, uh, and I didn't know anything when I went in and I knew, you know, a little bit more coming out, to be honest, not that much, but a little bit more. Yeah. And then you progress, you become uh, eventually general manager and, and work your way up to finally you become president and CEO. In, yep. was it 2007? Yeah, I became president and chief operating officer oh, uh, in 2007 okay. and then CEO in uh, 2009. Um, you know, I, I had such good fortune along the way. You know, the, the, the best thing that ever happened to me in Amphenol was I just worked for people who were so wonderful to learn from. Mm -hmm. So I worked for this guy, Mark Twelfhoven, who, who left the company thereafter, but Mark... Mark was really a, a very unique individual, crazy as the day is long, no <laughs> doubt about it. Anybody who knows him would tell you that. But one of the most dynamic people, yeah, energy, just you know, he the dial's always on eleven with him. Like it's just constant energy with Mark, and he was the guy who really gave pride and ownership and entrepreneurship to our team in Asia when Asia was a little bit of a stepchild of the company. I mean, when I joined Amphenol in 1998, Asia represented 5% of a $900 million business, $45 million in annual sales. And most mm -hmm. of that was in Japan, the vast majority of which was related to the space station. Oh. Because Japan had a big part of the space station, and that was sort of coming from Sydney and aerospace. Um, but Asia was small for, for Amphenol at the time. We had one factory in China. Uh, or one and a half, kind of, uh, right. barely one. Um, and if you look today, Asia is 43% last year of an eight, $8.2 billion business. Yeah. And this is like Massive. three billion, yeah. more than $3 billion, $3.5 billion. So over the course of those 21 years, you know, what we have achieved in Asia is, is unbelievable, yeah. multiplying by a factor of more than 60 our business. So Mark really laid the groundwork of that. And I, I just learned a lot about Mark from that. I then worked for a guy, I ended up, uh, I was general manager of our factory called Aska when it was pretty small. It became much bigger once I left and you know, they, they took the, the yoke of me <laughs> off of it. And then the people really ran with the business. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, case, it's a great business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is an amazing business now. And then I was in charge of our Asian cable <clears throat> assembly business, uh, working for a guy named Jamie Frazier, who was running the interconnect what today we call Interconnect Systems Group or mm -hmm. GIS. And Jamie was a totally different guy from Mark. He was a real grinded out kind of operator, excellent operator. I mean, he started his career in purchasing. You didn't want to be a vendor across the table from Jamie Frazier. I mean, <laughs> phew, that was a nasty experience to be sitting across the table and trying to raise a price to him or not lower your price enough. He, mm -hmm. And by the way, he was tough with his sister companies too. I mean, he... He was rough on, uh, on that front, but he knew how to grind out the profit. He knew how to execute. He knew what it meant to deliver on commitments in, in the most Amphenolian way. And you know, sitting in ops reviews with Jamie, for I only worked for him for about nine months, but those nine months were very formative. I mm -hmm. mean, wasn't always the nicest guy, uh, Jamie, but he was really an amazing executor and operator, and you, you really learn a lot. And then then at the end of 03, um, Martin Loeffler, who's our, still our chairman today and mm -hmm. who was then our CEO, he asked me to come back to the U.S. to take over our RF business. Right. So I moved here to Connecticut. Um, my office was in Danbury, and there we started to build an RF group mm -hmm. um, that today Zach Rayley runs. And again, you know, I built it to a relatively small stage, and Zach has built it into a much more than a billion-dollar amazing business right, uh, right. over the time that he's been in charge of it. And uh and then it was in, uh, so that was in you know, end of 03, and 
beginning of 07, came here to Wallingford to these lovely offices that haven't changed a bit since I came here. <laughs> and the rest is history. So as the, let's just say it, the person in charge of Amphenol Corporation, right? You oversee all of this. Fortune 500 company, $8.2 billion in sales last year. You have, what, 114 different businesses? That's what it is as of last quarter, as yes. As of last quarter. Um, over Four seven... new wonderful acquisitions, by the way. They're just outstanding companies. Oh, good, yeah. good. Um, and you have, what, over 70, 75,000 employees? 74. 74. I was close. You, you, have, you got your numbers. You know your numbers, which is a good Amphenolian <laughs> trait. Yes, I do. Do you ever stop yourself... When you think about that sometimes and just go, Whew, I can't I can't believe that that I get to to work with all this and, and oversee all this. Yeah, I wouldn't say it, it's not in a bad way even. No, I mean look, what I every day am so thankful for is just working with these people in Amphenol. I mean, mm-hmm. we it, it's cliche. It's very cliche, let me say, for a CEO to say, Oh, it's all about the people and oh, we've got the best people. But we've got the best people, and it's all about those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is true in this case. It is really true. And let me, let me just put it this way. Like, most companies run themselves by a system. We run ourselves by a culture. Mm-hmm. And that is an enormous differential. You, you, you go to famous companies like GE and Danaher and Raytheon and Lockheed. They may talk about the people, but they live by the system. Right. We don't in right. Amphenol. When do you hear about me, hear me talk about the Amphenol system, the, the way of working? We talk about the culture of this company. And I tell you, I am so fortunate and probably the luckiest part of my job is that I get, as part of my responsibility, mm-hmm. the luxury of going around the world and meeting these people. Sure. Probably more than most people get to do. Absolutely. Because that's actually part of my responsibility is to interact with our people. And... I mean, it's amazing that they pay you to do this because these are great, great individuals. And just the diversity of the, of the life experience, the diversity of the backgrounds, the, the perspectives that everybody has. I mean, these, we, we've got people from all walks of life, you know, people who came from nothing and people who came from a lot, people who went to the best schools in the world and people who didn't even go to school. Mm-hmm. And from every corner of the world, you know, we're in more than 40 countries around the world and, and just the, the extraordinary uh, degree of, of experience, challenges that people have gone through, amazing families that people have. Yeah. I, it, it's, just, it, it's just really out of this world impressive when you deal with Amphenolians, as I call them. And, you know, I get paid to go meet these people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty good job. Yeah, it's it, great. It's unbelievable. And so, you know, when you talk about, you know, sitting back and saying, oh, you know, I get to lead this company. I mean, I guess technically I get to lead this company. But a lot of times I feel like I'm just sitting on the shoulders of these people. And they're taking us all the way. And, you know, I get to talk about it to the public. I get to meet shareholders. I get to right. be trotted out to customers once in a while. But the leadership in this company happens 114 offices around the world. Right. People like Ryan, who you know, you know, mm-hmm. people like Subi Katragada down there, and I could name all 114 sure. of them here. Sure. You know, Robert John in India, I mean, you name it, you know, Sally Yin in Shanghai. I mean, these are extraordinary people. And, you know, any company in the world would die to have one of those folks. Right. But, they all chose to be part of Amphenol. And uh, so, you know, when I reflect on you know, anything in my job, it's that. 
when you you mentioned the, the handful of times that you go to see customers, and I'm not sure how often you do that, but when you do, when someone brings you in, asks you to be a part of a, a customer uh, conference, uh, customer meeting, whatever it may be, because they want to have you to hopefully help seal the deal, just for lack of a better term. Hopefully not screw it up. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, of course. When you come in, though, what's your... Just call it. Let's just create a, a situation here. It's a new, you know, the the latest and greatest commercial aircraft that's being built by you know the Acme company, and and they're looking for one, uh, one and only one supplier, and it's down to Amphenol and someone else to be the interconnect supplier of choice. And you go in, and, and what would you say to that company to convince them that they should work with us? Let me put it in, in a little bit of a different way. Okay. We had, a number of years ago, one of our competitors actually did a consulting study to, to, to figure out why was Amphenol so successful. And they actually surveyed customers to say, why do you like working with Amphenol? And look, we think we have the best products, and I, I would you know, take an oath, you know, a blood oath, to mm -hmm. tell you that we absolutely have the best technology. We have the broadest range of products. We have the most deep manufacturing capabilities. We're local. Our delivery is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Right, Ryan Fisher? <laughs> <laughs> and we, we have all those things. But, you know, others say the same thing. There's no doubt about it. Our competitors are probably saying the same thing. And while we believe it and we know it to be true, the customer hears those same words probably coming out of the mouths of a lot of different people. Right. But there's one thing that they don't get from others, especially bigger companies, and that's access to people who can truly make it happen on their behalf. There it is. And yeah. the, the differential that we have, and this is what these consultants ended up figuring out. And by the way, I, I would have told them this if, without them paying all this money for consultants <laughs> if they just called me up. The, the differential is that when you meet an Amphenol salesperson, that person can immediately get to a general manager who can make it happen. Right. A person who has responsibility for engineering, who has responsibility for manufacturing, who has responsibility for quality, responsibility for HR. He or she can decide all those things and make reallocations, changes, movements, redirections to get it done on behalf of that customer. Right. As opposed to a company who has a more central system where there's a big sort of wayback machine of salespeople. And when the salesperson gets a piece of data from a customer, it migrates its way up through the chain. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it maybe gets to a chief marketing officer of some sort. Then it has to go through maybe the CEO, who then talks to the CTO or the COO or the C something, something, something. <laughs> I mean, these companies have more Cs in them than anything. It's, we have two. Right. And we have CEO, CFO, nothing else. Nobody right. else gets a C on their name. And that, that, that filtering up and down, which eventually translates to action on behalf of the customer, can take a long, long time. And also go through the hands of people who don't have the power to do it. In our company, we got 114 people, mm -hmm. general managers, who are usually one person removed from whoever is talking to a customer at a given moment and who can just go out and make it happen in the moment. Right. Salesperson in the meeting can text to one of our general managers and say, hey, the customer needs a little more help on this design. Can we speed it up? Two minutes later, 
the GM is, has, has the engineering manager in their office saying, hey, I want you to reallocate into that program. Right. Let's get it done by Friday instead of two weeks from Friday. Right. Salesperson's got the answer on the spot. And by the way, our GMs spend a tremendous amount of time with customers. Oh, yeah. On the spot, making commitments that they can live up to because they're the ones who actually control the reins of that whole organization. That's the differential. That's the true differential. Yes, we have better products. Yes, we have better manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have better cost, better quality, all those things. But the others just can't say that. You know, I, And that, that is a big, big difference. So when I go to a customer, yeah. I talk about that. I talk about the organization. I talk about the culture. I talk about the responsiveness, the agility, the, the fact that we have around the company 114 people who have every tool in their tool belt to make it happen on behalf of that customer and will bend over backwards to support them. I agree with that a thousand percent. I talk to people on here, on this, on this endeavor, and I'm fortunate enough, I haven't been to probably all the locations you have, but I've been to a lot of Amphenol locations and you talk to people about what makes this company special. And almost to a person, every single one of them says in their own way exactly what you just said, is that, it's not, it's, I can just get things done. I don't have to go through a bunch of red tape and a bunch of bureaucracy. And I don't need some corporate mandate on thou shalt do this and thou shalt do that and that shall, shall not do this. I can just go and say, this is what I, this is what needs to be done to make sure we secure this business and keep it. And it's done. And make it happen. Yeah. And it's done. Absolutely. For a company this successful is, yes, I can see where and that could be scale, your differentiator. It's a big company. Sure, absolutely. Big company. Is, yeah. And to still retain that entrepreneurial, make it happen, agility, that can-do approach to, to doing things on behalf of our customers, this is, uh, this is it. That's the trump card. So in your time here, how much has stayed the same? How much has changed in your time, just in the various roles? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. Yesterday, uh, I was doing the same thing we're doing, but in person with a bunch of shareholders. We, we have these things called uh, investor conferences. And mm -hmm. uh, Craig and I go, and uh, over the course of starting at 8 in the morning and finishing about 4.30, we meet with about 50 or more shareholders. It's a little bit like speed dating. You get like 50 <laughs> minutes they ring and, a bell. And uh, the next one knocks on the door, actually, <laughs> oh. is what happens in, in reality. You're, you're, you're in great. this hotel room in yeah. New York at the New York Hilton this time. In fact, there was like a jackhammer going the whole day right outside our window. It was ah, terrible. Wonderful. But they ask all these, these questions. And I got this question actually yesterday, the one that you just asked, which is, you know, well, you've, you've been in this role now, you know, 10 and a half years and, or as CEO, and what has changed? And I referred them back to something that I said at the time when I became CEO, and they asked me what will change. And I remember I got that question a lot because makes sense in the U.S. and and I guess probably worldwide when you know the new sheriff comes in, in most places in most cultures, the new guy wants to sort of make an imprint, you know, kind of dust off the fingerprints of his predecessor and put his own seal. You know, they change the carpets, they change the drapes, they reorganize, right. they restructure. Because if you say we want to maintain status quo, they're like, well, then why are you here? Yeah, there's a bit of ego. Yeah. I mean, a lot of CEOs are pretty egotistical, and, you know, I'm sure my kids say I am too. But <laughs> but the fact is, is there there is this sort of very common trait in 
CEO transitions where just everything changes. And a lot of times everything changes just because this new person wants it to be different. Not because it had to change, not because the prior person was doing a bad job, but they want to put their own stamp on it. Well, I, I told myself early on, that's not how we're going to do a transition in Amphenol. This is a phenomenal company, mm -hmm. phenomenal company. And you know how Martin ran it was just out of this world. I mean, I idolized that guy. I still do today. And what, what he was able to do with Amphenol over his more than a, roughly a decade of being CEO was just truly amazing. And we didn't need to change. So when people asked me that question, I said, you know, what are you going to change on day one is how they would always ask. I said, nothing. Yeah. I'm not going to change a single thing. I'd be insane to change. <laughs> I mean, yeah. why on earth would I want to change something that is going so well? Right. But then what I said to him is, look, if you ask me that 10 years from now, what has changed, I'm sure some things will have changed. But the same happened with Martin over 10 years. The, the company evolves, the market evolves, the competitive landscape evolves, technology evolves. And I said that my job as CEO is to make sure that regardless of which way the world goes, which way our world goes in our industry and in our market, that we can adapt in real time and adapt faster and adapt more suitably mm. to be more successful than our competitors. And I think we've done that. And so if you think about the snapshot today versus 10 years ago, you know, the company is three times the size and we have four times the income and seven times the stock price. And I think, you know, everybody in the company should feel very, very proud of, of that. That's a, it's a, pretty good, a pretty good track record in oh, a decade. Yeah. And some of the things that are different today than they were, one thing that's not different is this office. <laughs> I'm still sitting on the same chair I bought 15 years ago when right. I became uh, a group general manager over in Danbury, and it's a comfortable chair, and yeah, know, I, I like it a lot. Yeah, As I said to you when you came in, fake leather actually lasts longer than real leather, <laughs> turns out. And yeah. you know, after a $150 purchase, it's fully depreciated. Yes. Which is nice. It's it off is. the books. Craig likes that. You did learn CFO. accounting. You're right. I, I've learned a little bit of accounting. But, but look at it. Five years ago, we became a sensor company. And that was through the acquisition of GE Advanced Sensors. Now, 10 years ago, did I say, hey, I'm going to become CEO and take us into sensors? Absolutely not. But over that first five years, we saw more and more applications where our interconnect products were being used in conjunction with some high technology sensor and where the customers were struggling with that. Yeah. Where the customers, you know, were, we, we, I remember examples where there was some quality issue at a customer. And well, is it the sensor company's problem or the connector company's problem? Everybody's pointing fingers at each other. Right. And the customer kind of throws up their hands and says, hey, somebody got to take ownership of this. Well, we took that ownership when we decided to make the acquisition of GE's advanced sensor business, uh, which is now five and a half years ago. That was a big step. It was a step, though, that was adapting yeah. to a world that was implementing more sensors, adopting more sensors, and requiring those sensors to be packaged with Interconnect. And I mean, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal acquisition that we made at the time. You know, the whole team, the, the guys that really mattered, Pete Straub being mm -hmm. foremost among those, who's now our group general manager of our whole sensor business. By the way, we've acquired eight sensor companies since then. 
we've built a big sensor business inside of Amphenol. Right. We don't publicly disclose the, the number, and I won't do that here today, but it's not small at all. <laughs> um, we've grown that business substantially through acquisition and, and organically. And what we've seen most importantly is that one of the original thesis that, that we were pursuing was there is value to presenting to your customers a complete solution of an interconnect and a sensor. And that comes clearly true. When we talk to customers, I, I talk to customers, and you, you just see them so happy that now they've got one throat to choke instead of a bunch of people pointing mm. fingers at each other. And as the technology evolves, as sensors become more and more embedded in new, gen, new generation applications, whether that's you know, Internet of Things or next generation autonomous driving and all those various aspects of that sensors are such a critical component, our ability to offer that complete interconnect solution, including connectors, including cables, including sensors, is amazing. It just opens up a whole new world. Ten years ago, we weren't a sensor company. Right, right. So, you know, you think about a change. Well, that, that's a pretty big change. Yeah. We've made in those 10 years 43 acquisitions. Right. I mean, so strategically, we've put a lot of the company's hard-earned capital behind our acquisition program more than ever before. And that included... I think three of the four largest acquisitions in the company's history, FCI being the largest that mm -hmm. we acquired in the beginning of 2016. Times Microwave was actually my first acquisition. I acquired it in Q1 of 09 at the depth of the recession from GE. It was my first sort of thing I did as a CEO. Now, the story that I got in talking to one of the guys earlier was legend has it that was, was that done almost in the parking lot between you and their former GM, Peter Page? That's the legend, and there's some truth to that, because <laughs> I started, when I got here, I started in 2007 as COO, mm -hmm. I started courting Peter. And it, it turned out there wasn't a lot of communication between Times and Amphenol, even though we were, by the way, together back in 1989, but 20 mm -hmm. years of separate ownership sort of drifted them apart. Right. We were co-tenants in a building, basically. Right. But Peter parked right next door to me. And I got to know him, and he's a wonderful guy, Peter Page. I mean, I, I take a bullet for that guy every day of the week. He's just such a good guy. And Times, soon after I came here, was accidentally sold from Smith's Industries to GE. That's and what I, I heard. And I truly mean accidentally. It was part of a legal entity. They didn't realize it till like two weeks before closing that it was there, and it was too late to move it. And so Times was sold to GE, GE didn't know what to do with it. The day it was sold to GE, I called the head M&A lawyer at GE and I said, hey, we'd, we'd buy this from you in a heartbeat. It took GE two years to decide to buy it. But during those two years, wow. Peter and I forged a relationship that let's just say gave us a nice leg up in the process. Oh, but what a great. wonderful acquisition that company has been. Yeah. And just fabulous. So we've made 43 acquisitions over that 10 years, four of which we just announced last quarter, seven of which have been this year. Uh, already. So I think we've put a lot of money behind our acquisition program and that's paid great dividends to the company. It's broadened our product offering. It's expanded the markets where we participate. It's deepened us in geographies. And most importantly, it's strengthened our management team. Yeah. So that's 43 management teams that joined Amphenol. You know many of them as, yeah. you, as you interact with people, even just in your group, you see the strength of some of those individuals who've joined us by acquisition. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's and every time I turn around, it's, oh, we had this new acquisition here, a new acquisition there, and I'll see Martin Booker in Sydney, and hey, did you hear, we just acquired this company. Oh, God, unbelievable. Connick and Bern Richter. Right. 
Yes, that was Bern Richter was was the one that he uh, was uh, uh, very proud of uh, about a month or two ago when I saw him. You want to know a great anecdote about Bern Richter, by the way? Sure. Amphidol's got so many great stories, but this is a real good one. Bern Richter was founded by a guy named, I'll give you a hint. Um, George? I'm Bern kidding. Richter, I'm kidding. Yes, yes. Who's now our general manager. Yeah. Bern is a, just an amazing guy. We, By the way, we've courted Bern Richter to sell to Amphenol for a decade or more. Wow. I mean, literally a decade we've been trying to buy that company, and now was the time where he was finally ready to sell. Mm-hmm. And it's a better company than it was a decade ago. It's a beautiful business, high-technology medical cable assemblies. So Bern, one of his hobbies, he's in the middle of nowhere. It's like surrounded by cow farms up in the sort of mid midlands of Germany. One of Burns' hobbies is he collects koi, K-O-I, the fish. Yeah. You know, those famous Japanese fish, koi. Which can yeah. be quite valuable. I yeah. don't know if you know this, but apparently in I Japan, there that. are koi that sell for millions of dollars. There's Whoa, no two koi who have the same pattern. I guess every koi is unique. I don't know much about fish, but apparently these koi are something special, according to Burns. So in our purchase and sale agreement with <laughs> Burned Richter, there is a provision that allows Burned perpetual right of access to our factory to feed his fish. <laughs> because there's a fish pond in the middle of the factory where he keeps his koi. Is that the most unique provision in, in one of these contracts? I mean, I've seen some different provisions, but yeah. I'd say it's the most uniquely Amphenolian provision. <laughs> because what company would give a seller yeah. perpetual right of access to their factory truly in perpetuity? And I think we also are required to keep the pond at a certain temperature. <laughs> I, I love it's very it. very specific. I, That's great. I love it. And, yeah, you know, Burned is today the GM. One day, you know, he will retire at a certain age and it will pass on to his successors. But he will always be coming into the factory to feed his fish. And hopefully he'll stop in for a cup of coffee and tell us some more yeah. stories from the past. That's great. Can you talk about any of the, the new initiatives, whether it be at the corporate level or even some of the divisional level that you're really intrigued by? Well, I mean, I'll say one thing. You know, you've you've been a big help to us and your team. And I'll give a shout out to Kelsey here because she's been such a fabulous asset for us in putting together the company's, not our first, but our first good sustainability report. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a hot topic right now. I mean, just over the last month, this, this, the whole concept of sustainability has gotten just enormous, uh, enormous attention, and in part because there's this big group of CEOs called the Business Roundtable, who released a, a very kind of controversial document just a few weeks back, saying that companies, the role, what is the job of a company, you know, the mission of a company, right. and you know, traditionally the mission of a company, at least in the U.S. environment, has been to create value for shareholders. And that's a pretty straightforward thing. And the Business Roundtable has come out with this idea that says, well, it's not just that. You also have to create value for other stakeholders, communities, employees. More holistic. More holistic. Now, and that's great. It's It's very controversial, though, for a lot of reasons, which I won't get into. What I would say is, you know, our company has always been incredibly focused on sustainability. And when you think about sustainability in its broadest sense, it doesn't just mean reducing carbon in the atmosphere or using less water. It, it means doing the right thing on behalf of your employees, mm-hmm. on behalf of your community, and on behalf of the children one day of your employees. And I think 
every one of us around Amphenol can hold their heads very, very high in terms of our perspective on this. Yes, we're a hard charging company. Yes, we are a high performance company, but we don't cut corners and, and we don't sacrifice the good of our people, our communities, our customers, or other stakeholders in so doing. And I think that we've been an outstanding corporate citizen for decades, mm -hmm. certainly the decades that I've been part of it. And one of the reasons for that is that the people who run the company live in the community. Absolutely. Right. I mean, our general managers, this company is not run from Wallingford. That's it's run right. from 114 places. Right. Many of those GMs sit in the plant. Mm -hmm. They park their car next door to the people who work for them. They go to church. They go to the grocery store with the people who work with them. They, their kids go to school. They're part of these communities in many, many ways. And when you are integrated into a community, and you're, you're from Sydney and you work up in Sydney and you know how integrated we are into that community, oh. the sustainability of that community is part and parcel to how we've always thought about running our company. No question. But yeah. one thing we haven't done the job good enough on is communicating that to the outside world. And, and so the push has been that our company is really disclosing what they're doing. And, and if you're not disclosing it, there's a presumption that you're not running your company in a sustainable fashion. Fair enough. And, and so we've had a big initiative and Dave Silverman, uh, our, our head of HR, he's been really integral in, in driving this um, to, to really revamp how we think about communicating about this so that you know, our stakeholders, shareholders, who by the way, care about this more and more now, future and current employees mm -hmm. and the communities that we operate in together with our customers all have a better understanding of why that unique Amphenol culture actually allows one to not have to sacrifice performance for sustainability. That actually to be sustainable, to use less carbon, to put in LED lights like we've done here, and you, you got to see our handyman putting them in as right. I toured you around the, uh, around the office, those are actually things that are good for the long term of the planet, but they're also good business. They're damn good business. Yeah. I mean, we're spending less money on electricity in this building because we put in LED lights. If you use less water in a plating factory, you have to clean less water. It uses less energy. It costs less. Right. By the way, you want your employees to be healthy because you want them to stay with you forever. And one thing we're so proud of in this company is the longevity of the team of Amphenolians around the world. We have phenomenal retention of our people. And part of the reason is because there is that sort of nucleus into the core of Amphenol of caring about the people that we work with and that we work around. And, but we haven't communicated it well. And so that's why one of the initiatives that we've been really pushing is to, to demonstrate to the outside world mm -hmm what we all know on the inside about Amphenol. And so we put sure. out this great sustainability report. We issued a press release on Monday this week. Mm -hmm. um, again, your team has done a fabulous job helping us lay that out, make it look pretty. Oh, thank you. It's a first step. Right. I'll accept any advice about making it better in the future. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but that's something I'm really proud of, and I think it's an important. And it, again, it's not an either-or. In our company, we believe that it's great business to also do the right thing. Absolutely, and that's something. So that that's that's one. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and on and burn through your whole podcast here talking about <laughs> the new technologies that we're working on, right. the new programs we're working on. I mean, our our products are used and they are enabling 
systems and functionalities and and ways of living a life that are just unbelievable. I mean, robotic surgery. I mean, this has mm-hmm. changed people's lives. I know somebody who went through robotic surgery just very recently. Changed it changes your life. A surgery that in the past would have put you out for months would have had like you cut open sitting on an operating table now can be done arthroscopically with a robot assisted structure that you're walking you know that afternoon yeah, amazing i mean and yeah. and that machine doesn't work without our cables and connectors yeah, yeah. it doesn't work right it fails yeah. and you know you, you think about the the airplanes and you talked about you know you rip the skin off and what you see i mean the amount of fuel that we have single-handedly saved, the amount of carbon that has not gone into the atmosphere because we have reduced the weight of components exactly. on airplanes. Yeah. It, it's really unbelievable. And you know, autonomous driving and some of these amazing things where our products are really core building blocks of making those technologies successful. There's a lot of that going on, but again, I... I, could, I get excited. I could go on for hours. Oh, of here. course, that's a good thing. One more scenario: you meet someone here, and I know you do often. You're at corporate, and then at other divisions, fresh out of college, brand new. This is their first week at Amphenol, and they get a chance to meet you. What do you say to them? Um, number one, I say how jealous I am because I, I miss that. I, I mean. It is an amazing time in one's life to be fresh at the beginning of your career. And you know, we had actually this summer some interns here, um, both college interns and, and MBA interns. And I spent you know, a decent amount of time with, with them uh, on a couple of different occasions. And it, it's just amazing to see the energy and the enthusiasm and the optimism from someone who has the whole world in front of them. Yeah. And and that's one thing. So I tell them how jealous I am because I miss <laughs> that. I would I would love to just have a week where I could turn it back and go be one of them for yeah. a week and not know everything I know today. Oh, that's true. It would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. Right? But you know, that doesn't work in life. So you got to sort of move forward. Um, look, I I tell new people to the company that number one, I hope that this is the place where they're gonna spend their whole career. I hope that this is the kind of a culture where they say that is really something I want to be a part of forever and that they end up having one job for the rest of their lives. But I also know that that may not be the case with every one of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's fine. I mean, there are plenty of people who come and say, well, that's, you know, I want to try something else. And by the way, some of them try to come back later on and you know, the door is always open. Right. But, but what I always tell them is what I wish I knew when I was a paralegal or Mm -hmm. when I was first a lawyer, is what you think may be important today. Things like, you know, that how much is your biweekly paycheck or, you know, what's the title that you have or what's that first project that you're getting to work on or, you know, all the other things that are kind of tangible and young people know about it. I, I say that's all good stuff. But really think about what matters to you truly in your career. Where do you want to be a part of? Where do you want to feel that you're in a real place where you can make an impact and where in turn you feel that that impact has a real value? And, and I say that you know, the thing about our company is 
a young person coming into Amphenol can have an amazing impact early on. And we give people chances at a stage in their career that they don't otherwise have. I mean, just look up in Sydney, look in the corner office in Sydney at a guy like Orion Fisher. Mm -hmm. And he's running an enormous business at an age that in most companies, you know, he's still like three levels down from that guy running that business. Right. And doing an incredible job of it. Just unbelievable. And that doesn't exist in a lot of companies. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe the first title that Ryan had wasn't what he wanted, or maybe the first paycheck wasn't as much as, you know, he, he would have imagined. I remember when he came in, he was a temp he was in a customer temp. service. He was a temp in customer service. And, yes. And, you know, I can give you so many examples like that all around the company of people who were given responsibility at an early age that maybe they weren't necessarily ready for. By the way, you're talking to the poster child for that. <laughs> I was never ready for any job that I got in this company, including the job that I'm in today. I was never ready for it. Right. But somehow I managed not to hose it up too badly. And I made mistakes. Those mistakes were tolerated. And those mistakes were taught from. And I think that's the kind of a company that a young person should want to work for. And, you know, but not all of them do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. Yeah. And I, I think when you, when you look around the organization, again, at people who've stayed so long in this company, we have a little bit self-selected a group of people who want to be part of something bigger, who want to have an impact on something special, who are so proud uh, of the success of the company and so thirsty for even more success that the sky's the limit with that group. Yeah. And you know, so that's a little bit the spiel I'll give to people. Okay. Finally, yes. this will be the last one. You mentioned it a couple different times, uh, the phrase Amphenolian. Just describe to people what that truly means to you. And I think it was your predecessor, I believe, who coined the phrase, or was it you? Yeah. It, actually, the term Amphenolian originally refers to this little kind of robot made of connectors. You see right. them over here. Yep. Yeah, we've I got see a bunch of your them shoulder. over here, yeah. which goes back actually quite a long time. Um, I'm not even sure who came up with the phrase, but I, I think, I, I don't know if I was the first or if Martin to, to apply that term to us, not that little robot. Right. But for sure, that's what we are. And, you know, I use that term with investors, with customers, with whatever, actually, one of our uh, one of our analysts uh, once wrote a report saying Amphenolians of the world unite <laughs> after we had a good quarter. <laughs> That's great. So it was a great one. Um, look, what is an Amphenolian? I mean, it, I always say to people, to be an Amphenolian requires you to have some very very unique traits, and, and it's traits that are not typically found in in one person. So you know, for example. I talk so much about the entrepreneurial right. traits of an Amphenolian, that culture of entrepreneurship. But an Amphenolian is an entrepreneur, but also a collaborator. Mm-hmm. Now, we even have a term sometimes that we say collaborative entrepreneur. It's it's a contradiction in terms. It, it does not apply. Entrepreneurs are the least collaborative people on the planet. It's me, 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 me. Right. I mean, that's what a true entrepreneur. I mean, look at the guy who runs like a hot dog stand down in New York. Is he a collaborator? <laughs> no. No. I no. mean. 
In fact, he's pr he's probably throwing salt in the hot dog in the mustard of the guy next to him so that he sells more hot dogs than the other guy. That's right. But amphenolians are extraordinarily collaborative because they see the long term. They know that if they offer a hand of help to one of their peers, that the company benefits. And if the company benefits, ultimately they also will benefit. And it, it, what kind of goes around comes around. So that that's just an amazing, uh, amazing trait. The other trait is that I, you know, amphenolians are really driven people. I mean, mm -hmm. you know it. You interact with them all the time. I mean, they, don't get between an amphenolian and a business opportunity. <laughs> right? right. I mean, that's like right. getting between a hippo and water. It's not a not a smart not a smart thing. <laughs> but at the same time, this is a company that is deeply ethical. And in most environments, people would tell you that if someone is driven, they're going to cut corners. Absolutely. They're going to find a way to cheat the system just a little bit here and there because they have such an incentive psychologically to be successful mm -hmm. that a corner cut here and there is okay. Not in this group. We have not had in the public history of this company ever a scandal. Wow. Not one. And that's why every one of our competitors has had massive scandals. I mean, one of our competitors, a guy in Japan wrote a check for $140 million. <sighs> they lost it. I mean, just cheating the company. Wow. We don't have this. Right. I mean, this is an, a, a, an amazing thing. I mean, the other trait I, I always say is like the focus of an amphenolian. You, mm -hmm. know, you know it well. Monday morning, you're, you know, how are we going to get the parts out today? Yeah. What are orders each week? We got a forecast. You know, this is the 0 plus 12, the 1 plus 11, the yeah. 2 plus 10. On the eighth day, we got to submit our forecast. On the third week, we're going to have an ops review. In September next week, we're going to have our strategy meetings on the same day every year for my entire 20 years in this company. That's the focus. But at the same time, these are real visionaries. And we have people looking around the corner at what's coming next and preparing the company, orienting our resources, aligning where we're investing on behalf of where the trends are coming, and being focused on the here and now while also having an eye to the future. That, that's, that's also not, not an easy trait whatsoever. And then the final thing is the discipline. The, the discipline of amphenol people. I mentioned, you know, the forecast call on a certain right. day and all of this, you know, Monday morning. And there is a relentless discipline around this company, but it's coupled with agility. And agility does not usually match with discipline. <laughs> you think about people who are really agile, they're sort right. of flitting around and every day changing what they're doing. And, you know, that's, that's a great trait, you know, really adaptable. But what you get here is people who are both disciplined but also really adaptable, mm -hmm. willing to change in a moment's notice if there's a reason to do that change. And, and that discipline and agility together. So, you know, those sort of four contradictions in terms are, are for me, just the, the core of what makes up an amphenolian. And then, you know, ultimately it translates into the word that we always talk about in amphenol, which is accountability. And that, that trait of truly owning what you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. Not pointing fingers when things go wrong. In fact, I'd say most amphenolians point fingers when things go right and pass credit to others. Right. But when things go wrong, I mean, everybody in this company is the first to raise their hand and say, hey, I could have done better that time. What can I learn from it? What can I do, what can I do differently? It's on me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that sense of accountability ultimately is the core of what makes an amphenolian. Adam, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This has really been great. 
I appreciate you allowing me to come here and talk to you. Uh, means a lot, not only to me, but I think everyone from Amphenol, uh, their family, friends who are going to listen to this, I think they're really going to enjoy it. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Well, Chris, thank you. And I, I just want to say, you know, this idea you've had to talk to people around the company who are much more interesting than me. And I apologize, you know, for somebody having to endure this podcast here today to, to listen to me because I, the ones I've listened to, just phenomenal. And I mean, we have a, a group of people that are just so amazing. And, yeah. and I thank you for really going so far out of your way to to really you know peel back the onion on some of these folks around the company and, and see what makes them tick. And, and I think everybody in the company is so fortunate to have you doing this, Chris. Thanks well, again. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks. 